Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Please turn with me in your copies of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 22. In a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 18. We just sang uh, all praise to him whose love is seen. Have you seen the love of God? Then what does it say? In Christ the Son, the servant king. My love waxes and wanes. I wish I could say that it was constant all the time. But it's not. God's love is always constant. It never waxes. It never wanes. And there will be a day when all of God's children will behold the face of Jesus Christ and they will see the beam of God's constant love and that beam of his love will be on them forever and ever without waxing, without waning, without diminishing, without ever being boring, without ever growing cold. That is the love of God that I want to see forever. That's why I'm here today. That's why I sing because of that love. If you saw someone walking down the street and you saw them singing, what would you say? That's a weirdo. We come together every Sunday and we sing. Why? Because God has made our hearts to sing. Because we want to sing. Because we will sing forever and forever around that throne of grace. And you know what we're going to say then? We're never going to say, oh, I wish we sang a different song. Why? Because we will sing a new song. A song written by God. A song that's completely focused on Him. When we sing that song, we won't be thinking about ourselves. We'll be thinking about Him who he is, what he's done. And so may we know his love this morning as we read his word together. Would you stand as we read Exodus 22, 
beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. You shall, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There was a saying that stirred the hearts of most young boys when I was growing up. The saying went like this, I want to be like Mike. The Mike referred to in this phrase is the Basketball Hall of Famer Michael Jordan. 
And I remember growing up in the time when these sports superstars informed what we did when we played basketball or baseball or football. We practiced dunking on our Nerf hoops that hung on the back of our bedroom doors like Michael Jordan. We had home run derbies in our backyard where we tried to perfect our Ken Griffey Jr. swings. We played tackle football where we tried to emulate the running back style of Detroit Lions' famous running back, Barry Sanders. These were the people that we wanted to be like. We wanted to imitate them. We held them up as examples and studied them so we could mimic their styles with the hopes that we would also then mimic their success and their popularity. No one taught us to do this as young men. It was instinctive. It was built into us. No one sat us down and said, now you have to find someone to emulate. No, we were drawn to them, and when we were drawn to them, we wanted to be like them. And therein lies the danger. What we are drawn to, we want to be like. If you are drawn to the world, you will want to imitate the world. But if you are drawn to God, you will imitate God. That's why Paul commands us as Christians, as we read earlier, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And Paul commands that because that should be our desire as those who have been drawn to God, as those who have been drawn by God, which John 6.44 says. It is to us that he gave the right to become children of God, those who have received him, those who have believed in his name. And Paul appeals to the natural, God-given instinct of children who desire to be like their fathers, especially sons. Sons want to be like dad. They want to talk like dad. They want to dress like dad. They want to do the things that dad does. There is something about dad and about what dad does that draws them in. It captivates them. It so rivets them that they want to be like dad and it brings them to action. This can either be for a child's benefit or for his destruction. But for the Christian who seeks to emulate his heavenly father, who seeks to imitate his heavenly father, it will always, without question, turn out for his good, for his benefit, and ultimately not bring reproach or stain upon the father's name, but always magnify and exalt and glorify the father's name. Did you hear what it said? Therefore, be imitators of God as what? As beloved children. What kind of children? Not angry children. Not resentful children. Not rebellious children. Not discontent children. Not grumbling children. Not argumentative children, but beloved children. It's because of the love of God upon us as his beloved that we would say, yes, I want to be like the Father. I want to be like God. I want to imitate him. 
And it is Christians, and only Christians, who have the desire and the ability to be imitators of God. You can't make unbelievers imitate God. It doesn't work. And what do we call this when someone is an imitator of God? We call it godliness. Godliness, you can hear it even built into that word, is God-likeness. We are becoming like God. Christians are people who are to be continually growing in godliness. This is what Paul holds out to Timothy that he is to do. In fact, look that with me for a moment. Hold your finger in Exodus, 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. First Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In this exhortation to Timothy, Paul presses upon him to model this for all the people. It's not instruction merely for Timothy, not instruction merely for pastors, not merely instruction for those who are going to be super spiritual. It's for all Christians. So did you hear it? What does it say? Rather, train yourself for godliness. The word here, train, has this connotation of exhortation, of effort, of exertion, something that causes you to sweat. It's the word that we get gymnasium for. What happens when you exercise? Notice Paul compares it to bodily exertion, bodily training. When you do that, you have to Get your heart rate up. You have to maintain that heart rate for a period of time. You have to push yourself. You have to dig deep. You have to experience pain and struggle. I mean, who likes to work out? Workout means you have to wrestle with the thoughts of giving up because your body is telling you, I don't want to do this. Bodily training is of some value. It keeps you healthy, it gives you stamina and energy, helps you sleep better, keeps your heart healthy. How much careful thought or effort are you giving to training yourself for godliness? How about a question that pushes us even further? Are you training for godliness or are you training for the appearance of godliness?
You want other people to notice your godliness? You want other people to think that you are godly and holy? What's that like? It's like someone who's running in place. And everyone says, wow, look at that person. Look at how much they are doing. They look so good. And notice this person just running in place. Oh, yeah, it's great. And sometimes if you go like this, man, it's really hard. And everyone thinks that they look so good that they have it all together. But why are you doing it? You're doing it all for yourself. And while their reputation rises higher and higher, their pride swells more and more till their head is about to explode. And they, are, they think that they are robed then in the finest of linen only to be self-deceived. And they're waiting just for a little child to yell out, the emperor has no clothes. Because that's what it's like if you are training for the appearance of godliness. These are the ones who could not be bothered when Christ came knocking at their door. But one day, they will come knocking at Christ's door, and they will say, let us in, let us in. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? But Christ will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is the difference between a Pharisee and a true believer. It's a difference between those who would practice their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them and those who serve and give in secret before their father who sees them in secret and then will reward them. If you're still in 1 Timothy, turn a few more pages over to 2 Timothy 3. Starting in verse 1 through 5 of 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, Having what? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Where are those people? Where do you find these kind of people? Do you find them out there? I think Paul is saying you find them in your own midst. And you look at that list, you look at that list and, and all the things that Paul goes through, and then he sums it up with this, having the appearance of godliness. So they're doing all of these things, and you would think that how ugly and grotesque that they would look, but it says they have this appearance still of godliness. Somehow, all of these things are going on in their hearts and their lives, and still they're able to veil it with this appearance of godliness. And as Paul lists out all of these things right there in the middle, I think there, 
this whole list is pointing towards the middle, and the middle word there is slanderous. These people are slanderous, and the Greek word is diabolos. You know that word, maybe, somewhat, because from this we get this idea of devil. It's like they are deviled-tongued. They are slanderous. Yet they have the appearance of godliness. And then look at what it says. Very end of verse 5. Put your finger under this. Avoid such people. How is it that you can have the appearance of godliness but deny its power? It's because you do not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit residing in you. But when you have the Spirit of God, you will train yourself for true godliness. And you will train yourself through the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means come to us as spiritual disciplines, personal spiritual disciplines, and in corporate spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, meditation on God's word, fasting, or through corporate spiritual disciplines of gathering together for corporate worship, gathering together to pray, gathering together to partake of the Lord's Supper, gathering for true spiritual fellowship. These are the ways that God sovereignly works in our lives to grow us and to train us in godliness. And it's through these things that we're also trained in what we are to renounce and reject. Go over one more book, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. How has the grace of God appeared? It's appeared in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Do you hear it here? Now, the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has appeared, the embodiment of the grace of God. You want to know the grace of God? You've got to know Jesus, who has brought salvation for all people. And what has he done in our lives? He's trained us. This kind of training is different than the other kind of training. This kind of training is the training of a child. You ever have things in your house that are off limits to little kids? Like oftentimes in our house, it's been like a fireplace. And what happens? The child goes back, and you got to move them and say no. And what happens? The child goes back, 
And you got to move them and you got to say, no, don't touch that. And there's discipline involved. And same here. Train us to renounce ungodliness. No to ungodliness. Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You cannot grow in godliness and at the same time become more like the world. You cannot be godly and worldly. Growing in godliness will make you less and less like the world. It will make you more and more different than the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are distinct. You are the light of the world. And this way, we will know God's mercy upon our lives and commune with him as he works in us so that we become more and more like him. How do you grow in godliness? Be more with God. You think you're going to imitate God if you're never with God? If you don't know him? You can't grow in godliness. If there's someone in your child or grandchild's life who is a bad influence, what's your piece of advice? Stay away from that person. You cannot expect to be growing in godliness if you never commune with God. How can you be loving if you don't know his love towards you? How can you be compassionate if you don't know his compassion towards you? How can you be holy if you've never known his holiness? You can't worship him because you've been so busy trying to manipulate him rather than die before him as the sovereign Lord who is over all. And this now is where it brings us back to Exodus 22 and 23. God has promised that they would be his holy nation. He has told the Israelites, you will be my treasure possession. You will be to me a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And now God is explaining what this holy nation of people will look like. How will they live their lives before him? How will they live their lives with him? How will they live their lives with one another? And all of what they do is an imitation of who God is. So to a watching world, if the world was to look at Israel, the world would see God. What does the world see when it looks at the church? What does the world see when it looks at the people of God? Is it salt? Is it light?
And that's where we come to as we continue in our study of these chapters. How to imitate God. As God is speaking these words to his people, as God is even speaking these words to us, he is not asking the Israelites, nor is he asking us, to imitate a God who is far off, a distant God. God is asking them, and God is asking us, to imitate a God who is near, a God who is with us, a God who knows us, a God who is always there for us, a God who, when we look at the things that we are to imu- imitate, we would say, I don't know how I could do that. And God would say to us, that's why I'm here. We can't imitate God apart from God. We can only imitate God with God. God helping us. God supporting us. God making us able to do that. And so last week, we saw how we are to worship God alone because He is worthy. We saw how we were to extend compassion because He is compassionate. We saw how we are to pursue holiness because He is holy. Now number four, This week, we are to uphold justice because he is the righteous judge. We are to uphold justice because he is the righteous judge. Here now we come to the beginning of chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Here are all of these things that the people of God are not to do. They're not to lie. They're not to side with the many who are wicked. Sometimes we could think, well, well, look at all of these people. They must be in the right. God here says, there can be many who gather together who want to be a malicious witness. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Why would he say that? Because in God's economy of God's law, you had to have two or three witnesses to bring a charge against someone. And so here God is saying, don't conspire with somebody else to say, hey, we just need two or three witnesses to tell this lie. Just need a few people to get together to spread this falsehood and this untruth. and We will get our way. We will get what we want. God says, do not do that. In fact, it reminds me of, of what's written in Psalm, the first Psalm, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
here it talks about this blessed man. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He's not joining with the wicked. He's not doing what they say. He's not standing in the way of sinners. He's not sitting in the seat of scoffers. So it's like this whole aspect of life, whether he's walking or standing or sitting, whatever it is he's doing, he's not joining in with these false witnesses, with these wicked people, with these malicious witnesses. But what does the blessed man do? He delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Who is this blessed man? Why are these the very first verses of the Psalms? Who are the Psalms about? They're about Jesus Christ. They track with the life of David, and ultimately they track with the life of the Messiah, the life of Jesus Christ. Who is this blessed man? This blessed man is the king, God's anointed one. And if this is the king who is blessed, who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on them day and night, so then doesn't he bless all of those who are underneath his rule and underneath his reign? How much more so Jesus Christ, the blessed Son of God, who blesses those who follow him and who upholds perfect justice. Oh, how he loves God's law and upholds it and obeys it perfectly and completely. We want perfect justice. We have to look no further than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But then we come to the next verses of our section of text here, 4 and 5. And it seems like everything gets turned upside down. There's been a sense of people receive what they deserve. Appropriately, proportionately, without partiality. So what did it just say there at the end of verse 3? You should not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Just because he is a poor man does not necessarily mean that he is in the right. But then look at what he says. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now we're told to love and care for those who are enemies and for those who hate us. Upholding justice in this way goes against the grain. It rubs against our sinful, fallen inclination to leave our enemy and the one who would hate us. But God here tells us to love them. This will stand out in the world, won't it? We are to respond to these people in a way that runs counter to our human inclination to be self-centered and greedy. God's people are called upon to take the initiative of helping others whether they deserve it or not. And isn't this the same way that God has acted toward us? 
even while we were sinners and enemies of God, he reconciled us to himself through the death of his own son on the cross. Once we were alienated and hostile toward him, doing evil deeds, but Christ has brought reconciliation through his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless before God. He did not give us what we deserved. He gave us the free gift of his grace. He loved his enemies. He sacrificed for those who hated him. This is why Jesus came and said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Do you hear the imitation there? Why do you love your enemies? Why do you pray for those who persecute you? Because you are sons of your father. Be like your father. You're acting like God in this way. How are you supposed to do this? How am I, how are you supposed to love our enemies, love those who would hate us? Notice the direction of this with the second one in particular that he says, those who hate you. This hate's coming towards us. It's not that we're hating them. Legislation alone cannot produce the moral standards demanded by Yahweh. To be holy, God expects his people to overcome evil with good. Back in Titus says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but what? According to his own mercy. There it is, right there. How did God overcome the evil that was in our life? He overcame it with good, and it was the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior when he came and when he saved us, he overcame our evil with good. And here is the basis for our desire to uphold justice and what God says is right and even love our enemies and those who hate us. It's this, he will not acquit the wicked. It goes on to say this, doesn't it? Verse 7, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. It's the same thing that comes at the end of Psalm 1. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He is the righteous and just judge. And for our treatment of man and our not perverting just, justice by the way that we act or by the way that we treat others, we are reminded of the ultimate judge over everyone who is God himself. Human judgment or human justice does not have the final say over anything or over anyone God does. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. 
2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here again we come back to this phrase, For I will not acquit the wicked. It is a terrifying thought for some to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for your life. For what you have done. The thought that God will not acquit the wicked is ringing in your ears because in your heart you know that that is you. You will not escape God's judgment or condemnation. God will not pretend like you don't have any sin. He won't pretend that just being a good person is enough. In fact, what will He do? He will bring forth the books, the books of all that you have done, all that you've said. All that you've thought, all that you've desired, all will be laid bare and exposed. Nothing hidden from the sight of God's judgment. And then the final book, the book of life, will be opened. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You ever think about that? Do you ever read? Do you ever read books? Every time you make that action, you're reenacting judgment. You're reenacting the final judgment when the Lord God Himself will open the book of life. And either your name will be there or it won't. But that does not have to be your end. If you hear those words, God will not acquit the wicked, and you think to yourself, as I do, I am the wicked. There is no way out for the wicked man on their own. But guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. There is a way for you to stand before God as one who is righteous, who is clean, and who is justified, declared righteous. But the only way to have that position is to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, to be clothed in Christ's own merit. It is to plead your life and your case based upon what Christ has done, how he has saved you, nothing in what you've done to save yourself. It is to plead based on the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus and say that they believe in him as the only one who has done everything that they need to save them and reconcile them to God, there, there is no fear on the day of judgment. While the severity of God's judgment falls upon the wicked, upon the unbelieving, upon those who reject Christ, the goodness of God's judgment falls upon those who love Christ, who have followed and obeyed Christ, and who treasure Him above everything else. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. There is a judgment to look forward to. There is a judgment where the crown of righteousness is placed on the believer's head. There is a judgment that magnifies the goodness of God in saving and justifying and cleansing sinners. It's then, it's then when God opens the book that your name is found written in the book of life. And it's that confidence that says, we want to treat our neighbor, our fellow Christian, with justice and love. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Finally, number five, show mercy because he is merciful. Show mercy because he is merciful. It brings us to verse nine of chapter 23. You shall not oppress a sojourner You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God brings our minds back to those days in Egypt. Remember when you were in Egypt, remember when you were oppressed, remember when you were enslaved, remember when you were living in a land that wasn't your own. Remember Remember what that was like as you look at other people, as you love other people. And I believe that this verse rings true in the heart of every believer of Jesus Christ. What does it say? You shall not oppress a sojourner You know the heart of a sojourner. Christian, you know. You've experienced. You feel it. You know the heart of a sojourner. You know what it feels like. All believers throughout history have experienced the truth of this statement. It's because we are sojourners on the earth that we know what it is to live by faith. We know what it is to live in a land that is not our home. We know the weariness of journeying through this place with no final rest or contentment. We know what it is to want to be free from oppression. We know what it is to be sojourners and remain distinct and different from everyone else who is around us. We know that there is something better than what we are experiencing now in a place where we are meant to be, a place that we can call home. We know that our sojourning has shaped us and done a work in our hearts. We know that 
those who have the heart of a sojourner have been affected in the way that they think and the choices that they make and it affects the things that we love and what we set our affections upon. We are different because this world is not our home. I mean, imagine every day waking up and you're bombarded with sights, sounds, smells, language that reminds you you're not home. You're somewhere else. The worst plight of anybody would to be a sojourner with no home. To be journeying in this world, but to have no hope of a home to be in to find final rest and security. And you know all of the hardships, you know all of the difficulties, you know all of the suffering, you know all of the pain. But there is nothing to look forward to because there is no faith. Look at Hebrews 11 with me. Hebrews 11. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear, a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That is what it is to live by faith. We are sojourning through this world, through this earth, as it is right now, Believing that there is a heavenly home, a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, a city whose foundation is not built by hands, but is built by God himself, a new heavens and a new earth where we will be with the Lord forever and ever and where we will finally and fully be home. With such a final destination, we press on towards the blessed shore and we live as sojourners now, like 1 Peter says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation." We are those who live by faith in this world as sojourners because we have received God's mercy. 
His mercy has been lavished upon us, not giving us what we deserve. And there is a world, a world out there of people who need that mercy, who need to know God's mercy, who need to be freed from living as sojourners with no home and be given a faith that's looking toward that city that lasts. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We live as those who are able to give mercy because we are the salt of the earth. Let's pray. Father, your word is good and faithful and true. Let us uphold justice and love our enemies. Let us seek to give mercy because you have dealt with us according to your righteousness, according to your great love, according to your grace, and according to your mercy. And so we want other people to know you as we know you. Help us, Father, to be imitators of you as beloved children. And let that truth, that we are your children, be a source of great security in the midst of being a sojourner. Father, we look forward to that day when we will cross the river, when we will be on that blessed shore. When we will praise you because we have seen finally and fully your great love in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.